There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode number 409. And today in the show, we are continuing our habitat-specific series, and our focus is mountain country. Stuff like the steep hills and mountains of Pennsylvania, Tennessee, West Virginia, up in the Northeast. All that stuff is covered today, and we're joined by expert bow hunters Johnny Stewart, Bo Martonic, and Andy May. All right, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, brought to you by Onyx. Today we're talking mountain country, talking stuff like the Appalachian hills, foothills, mountains. We're talking about stuff up in the Northeast, like Pennsylvania, stuff like what you find in Vermont or New Hampshire, or Maine, stuff you might find down in, shoot, maybe the Ozarks. Uh, probably very applicable to the mountains you could be hunting in Idaho or some of the other Western states too. We're diving in how to think about these areas where there's typically lots and lots of country, big timber, and significant topography. Big hills, ridges, points, creek bottoms, valleys, draws, a lot of different things that are going to impact deer movement, how wind fluctuates, and how you as a hunter can can try to find deer out there and try to get away with getting close. So we're joined by three folks, as has been the case for the previous uh, renditions of this series. Andy May joins me as co-host. He's got some questions and some curiosities that he's going to be diving into here. But our special guests are Johnny Stewart and Bo Martonic. Both of these guys are Pennsylvania hunters. They're both diehards. They've both traveled across the country to hunt in different places. So they're not just doing hill country and mountain country hunting there in PA. They're hitting a bunch of other states too. They've got some great insight, different perspectives, different ways of going about things than we've heard on the hill country episode back, I don't know, a month or a month and a half ago. So we're going to cover some different things, but there is some overlap here. Um, so you can listen to that one and this one and take some things and add some things and kind of there's a there's a Venn diagram. There's some oversection there that, that I think is interesting, actually. So keep that in mind. Um, as far as backgrounds here, you know, Johnny is just a diehard, eats, sleeps, and breathes this stuff. And Bo, 
the one other thing he does additionally is he's got the East Meets West podcast, YouTube series, website. Uh, he's doing some cool stuff in the media space. So if you enjoy what you hear today from Bo, you can definitely get more from him. So uh, keep that in mind. The only other thing I will mention is that if you have not already signed up for our Whitetail Weekly newsletter, I'd highly recommend you do that. Just go over to TheMeatEater.com. Make sure you're subscribed. That's where all of our new stuff is shared first. That's where you're going to get updates on new content. That's where you're going to find out about some, some actually some pretty exciting things coming down the line with Wired to Hunt. That's where we're going to share it. We'll be talking about it there. So just want to make sure you're tapped in on what's going on here in the Wired to Hunt community. There's going to be a lot, so stay tuned. And with that, I think we should just kick it over to my conversation with Bo, Johnny, and Andy. All right, guys, we have got one hell of a trio on the line here for our Mountain Buck Masterclass. I've got on the line with me here Bo Martonic, Johnny Stewart, and Andy May. Uh, thank you all for making the time to be here for this. We've done a couple of these kind of roundtable masterclasses already here in 2021. And people are really, really liking it, and and big hills and mountains have been one of those terrain types that people keep asking for. So... I'm glad we can do it. Uh, Bo and Johnny especially, thank you guys for making the time to do this. Yeah, yeah thanks, no Mark. Appreciate you having us on. I'm, I'm looking forward to this conversation. Yeah, me too. So, so Andy, let's let's start with you because as we've done with all these, um, you've been kind of the inspiration for who we talk to each week in this series. And pretty early on, Bo and Johnny bubbled to the top as people that we should get on if we were going to talk about mountains or the Appalachians or anything like that. So uh, can you give me your scoop on why on why Bo and Johnny? Yeah, sure. Um, actually, you know, probably out of, out of all the types of habitat, um, mountain hunting is probably what I, I know the least of as far as whitetails. Um, so I reached out to, uh, quite a few guys that I, you know, respect that are good hunters that kind of hunt, you know, big hills or mountain country. And I wanted to get their opinion on who they thought would be, uh, good guests for this podcast, because it's, it's, it's not really my world. You know what I mean? I, I want it to be, I want that experience. And obviously, you know, you and I both, we want to learn more about this. Um, but I have not hunted, uh, mountain bucks. Um, I've hunted pretty much every other type of terrain, but not what I would consider mountain bucks. And so I reached out to, um, several guys and, um, well, I guess I'll start with, uh, with Johnny. Um, I think I asked like four or five guys, you know, if you could, if you could pick out two guys who would, you know, really be someone, you know, two guys that are really experienced, that are real consistent in this type of country that you, that you think are a cut above the rest as far as skill and, and knowledge. Um, and I think pretty much everybody, one of their guys, uh, was Johnny Stewart. Um, and I've, I don't know Johnny personally, but I've listened to a few of his podcasts and, you know, I've really enjoyed them. And he just, he just, you know, oozes experience, you know, when he talks, you could just tell this guy has a lot of experience. He stresses scouting and he's, he's a hard worker and any, anyone like that, that has, uh, those qualities, you know, I know I can learn from and, uh, I want to listen to, and then Bo, 
Bo is like, uh, I think he's perfect for this because um, when I asked Bo, uh, it was interesting. He, he said Johnny Stewart, and then he said his dad. And his dad declined. Um, but what I thought was so cool about that is, is, is Bo obviously has had an awesome teacher in his, in his father. Um, so he's going to have a lot of knowledge from his dad that has, has some great experience. But one thing I noticed about Bo is he's a great teacher himself. He's got some incredible, um, YouTube resources on, on mountain hunting and big Hills. Um, uh, some videos on there that I've watched that I think are just awesome. And he just conveys it in a really unique and special way. Um, like I always feel like I'm not a very good teacher. Like I, I, I have experience and I have some knowledge, but I'm not always the best at explaining it. Bo is, is exceptional at that. So he just, I think he's going to just be perfect for this podcast. Both these guys are killers and have a lot of experience. So I'm just really looking forward to it. Yeah, I'm right there with you, Andy. And, and I agree. I, I think that from everything that I've, you know, we're, we're going to, we're going to toot your horns for a little bit here, Bo and Johnny, and then we're going to come down hard. So don't get too comfortable. But, uh, but uh, what I was going to say is that, uh, I, I agree when it comes to Bo, you know, you're getting it done, but then you also are, are sharing it with people in a way that's, that's clear and digestible. And that is not a easy to do thing. And then as far as Johnny, I was here, I was listening to something from Johnny the other day, and I'm going to get the details wrong, but he was telling the story about how his brother or brother-in-law or somebody was going to stay in his house or something. And the only thing he was worried about is he said, don't you dare put any smelly flower-scented oh, detergent yeah. in my laundry machine. We'll be done if you do that. <laughs> <laughs> the level of dedication. I loved that. So, Johnny, you're, you're an A-plus in my book right there. <laughs> It kind of tells you where my what what my where my head's at and what I'm thinking about. <clears throat> you know, it's not all about money or like what drives me is like my time to hunt and what I'm passionate about. And you know, you only have so much time to hunt during the hunting season. And you got to kill that mountain deer or any mature deer in general. You got to do everything right. And then I got my one dryer and washer that it's not been. And that's what I tell my girlfriend. I said, ah. I said. Ah. I left my uh, long underwear here and you washed them. Now they're compromised. She's like, (laughs) (laughs) I love it. I love it. And and so, and so with that, I guess let's get into it. We, Andy and I both have a lot of things we're curious to pick your brains about. Um, I, I think the first thing, if, if I were to get kicked off first, the, the first thing that's on my mind is simply why, it's it's why does hunting whitetails in the mountains in this kind of really hilly steep country why does that just get the hairs on the back of your neck sticking up why does that get you to be so obsessed that you would chastise your family members about the kind of stuff they put in your laundry machine what is it about this that makes it so special uh johnny how would you how would you uh describe that for us to get things started well, I want to first say thanks, Andy, for the kind words. Um, I was sticking my chest out here like a rooster. Ain't nobody around. You know, I'm sitting in my living room. Man, look at me. But, uh, um, yeah, I think the biggest thing is the challenge. And the deer that I hunt are public land. Um, 
which not all mountains are, but a lot of mountainous area is vast pieces of land, which is public. But um, anything I'd like to do in life, I'd like it to be challenging. I look for a challenge. And then when um, you succeed, it makes it that much better. It might be a year, might be two years. You might hunt a deer for three years. You might never get the deer, but look at all the knowledge you're going to learn and hunt that animal. But the deer there are more nomadic. I mean, there's places they'll concentrate on food and the wind, uh, thermals, wind, whatever you want to call them, are just sporadic. You can't really, um, rarely, maybe if you're up on top or something, can't really depend on the wind. So the deer have the odds. It's in their favor. Um, they take advantage of all their senses and that's what I like. I like giving them that advantage, the odds. So I try to get at them to get the odds in my favor as much as I can. And you need to, cause it's so much in their favor. So find the edge, the, you know, find an angle on them. But I think it's the most challenging I've hunted probably six, eight different States over the years. Some of the, you know, more well-known, uh, whitetail states probably since I, I'm 42, going to be 42, or I am 42. You get to that age, you kind of the years go so fast. But um, I started hunting young, teenager, or whatever. But I got into hunting public land, trying different states when I was younger, um, and I just gravitated to the more challenging hunt as far as whitetails. Um, I've hunted some farm country. I've hunted pretty much everything, swamps, river bottoms, mountains, uh, you name it. Um, I went to visit my buddy. We were walking down the beach, uh, him and his wife and me and my fiance. So, man, it was over uh, South Carolina. Hey, let's go jump in the weeds here. I know there's some deer. We're, he had me shed hunting. It was like April, you know? So I've hunted with him down there, South Carolina. But I've hunted a lot of different types of terrains and habitat. and um, I think it's the most challenging in the, in the mountainous, not just in the ruggedness, um, the accessibility and accessibility. So the odds are in their favor. And it's, uh, it's that challenge, not just in deer hunting, just anything in life. Uh, I like to be challenged. I like to try to figure them out. It's the toughest whitetail hunting that, in my uh, experience. So, yeah, that's kind of why I like going after them. So. Um. Makes sense to me. What about you, Bo? What would you add? Uh, what I would add to that is it's from getting to to hunt out west and hunt elk and some different animals in different places. It's the closest thing I've found to backcountry type adventure in uh, the eastern U.S. And you know what Johnny said, the challenge is the deer act like deer. You can everything is just remote and, and vast and just it's just different. It, it's different. I've hunted farm country and, and swamps in different places. And it's just something that, although that the deer numbers are low and it, you can go literally days without seeing deer, but for some reason it just keeps bringing me back. And, and like, like Johnny said, he explained it really well. The challenge of it is something that, that I truly enjoy. And the, and the fact that you have the opportunity at an extremely old age class of deer 
Uh, it just drives me. It, not, it doesn't always work out that way, but the fa- the fact that you have that opportunity and to be able to do it, it's just it's just a beautiful landscape to be in, especially in October, November. I can I can certainly see the appeal. Um, I haven't got to spend a ton of time specifically where you guys are, but I did hunt Southwest PA one time a long a long while back, and then I spent a lot of time in. Uh, you know, some of the, I guess it's a bit further east than you guys, but some of the mountains and stuff in New York, and it's just beautiful country out there. And uh, combining that kind of scenery and that kind of wild space with whitetails, uh, there's just nothing not to like about that. Um, Andy, where where's your head at to start here? Because I always like to try to scratch your itch first, and that gets us always going somewhere good. So as 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 being, you know, a dang good deer hunter yourself, but one who's not as experienced in this, this most steep hilly country out there like this, what, what are you trying to figure out first so that you can show up someday in Pennsylvania or New York or New Hampshire or something like that and be effective? Where, where do you want to go with this? Yeah. So my, my experience with, uh, the biggest hill country that I've hunted, um, I have a fair amount of experience there, but it's, it's like, you know, three to 400 foot bluffs, you know, so it's, it's pretty rugged, you know, Southern Ohio, uh, you know, that, that, that type of area. So I'm guessing, I guess I want to ask like, what's the differences, if any, between just like your typical hill country, like something like that, um, as opposed to what you would consider mountain hunting or, um, is there a is there a certain size or elevation type that you kind of decipher between the two? But I guess the main thing is 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 there any differences between those? I know I know that's kind of a loaded question, but I just kind of want to see where you guys go with this one. How about you, Bo? So yeah, it's actually something I struggle with defining the difference on when it turns from you know big woods to mountain country and like what you're talking about and in southern ohio which i spent about five or six years hunting in that type of terrain i think a lot of it is very similar from the stands the standpoint of how the the wind reacts and how the deer use that terrain to their advantage but i think once you get into the the more the mountainous region where you're getting you know anywhere from 800 feet to even 1600 feet of elevation gain and and drop you know from the top to bottom and sometimes even bigger than that i know in some areas of virginia and north carolina you get even even bigger than where we're at but you have some different challenges with you know depending on how the food the food is where they can be hanging out at one year they might be hanging up toward the tops when it has a good oak drop and if there's you know not, not any acorns um they might be down lower in the in the cherry trees and and some of the beach and stuff there so there's the in the true i guess mountain country i would say that that when you have they, they can vary as far as elevation goes and how they do that but as far as how they move it's very similar in in i guess how you would quote hill country that would be i guess my best way of describing the the two there okay you got anything to add there johnny yeah that's a good question andy i think um when you say mountain, um, different people that live in, live, live in different parts of the country are going to view in their head what they've 
you know, view as a mountain to where it, to me, it is a kind of a, um, it's not, it's like a diverse, there's diverse habitat in the mountains and elevation change and flat. So yeah, maybe Ohio, um, it's kind of rugged two to three, 400 feet. Um, and actually an area where I hunt, um, near where, um, Bo is, it's a lot, they call it the, it's part of the plateaus of the, you know, the, um, Appalachian Allegheny mountains. So there is a lot of flat Europe on a lot of flat area. Um, but it's also considered mountains. Um, but I think the biggest thing that I look for, um, is the hunting pressure cause it's there everywhere. But yeah, I mean, um, it's just, um, it's a, it's a lot, uh, it's a lot of different habitat in the mountains. It's not just up and down. Um, but yeah, it's just, um, it's really, uh, it's different. There's, there's a different food sources, different elevation benches and some like the crow foot type of, um, whoop-de-doos I call them. And it's just, there is a lot of different, different habitat in the definition, the term mountain per se. Um, so it is kind of, you just got to learn that area, um, and how the deer inhibit that area and, and stuff like that. But, uh, so yeah. Yeah. I can, I can imagine like just because of, I mean, Bo, you're talking 800 to 1600 feet, you know, it kind of, in maybe some of the areas you guys hunt, I mean, that's, that's at least two to four times the size of the biggest stuff I've hunted. Um, so I imagine, yeah, there's a lot, there could be a lot more diversity and different types of habitat and, and, uh, going on there. So you, you mentioned a little bit about food, um, you know, with the oaks, you know, typically up, you know, maybe towards the upper portions and then the cherry and beach, you know, maybe down lower. What other food sources are you guys seeing that, uh, are really key for, for deer, like in, in this type of habitat, you know, maybe, maybe take me throughout the, the season, like, um, you know, early to, you know, maybe mid season, then even the late, what, what do you guys see the deer kind of transitioning through throughout the season? Uh, uh, let's start with you, Johnny. Well, um, like you were, like Andy said about, um, Ohio, I wonder sometimes cause Ohio is some rugged land mountainous country that I wonder sometimes through the summer, I don't get much time down there. Um, but the population is low. So, but, and it's mainly, um, large stands of oaks and there's not much undergrowth, you know, browse is definitely, but kind of up in the, um, Allegheny's kind of up where me and bow hunt and somewhat up into New York there. Um, it seems like there's a lot of browse, a lot of undergrowth, um, compared to the, the Ohio's, the, some of the West Virginia's, but also the clear cuts through the summer. Um, it's, you could walk through the woods and see what they, they, they're nibbling on. But I think like some of the deer in Ohio, I look at a mountainous deer, their bodies ain't huge, but the racks are huge. And some say it's because of the minerals out there. Um, and they can adapt just like a deer down South or smaller. They know how to adapt and their body, uh, might be smaller because the food isn't as plentiful, but the racks like maybe in, in Ohio might be bigger because of the minerals, but, 
and like in the PA, I feel like there's through the summer that the deer are definitely pretty big. There's a lot of browse through the summer. It's just um, fresh growth, the fresh tips of grass, um, blackberry briars, fruits. I mean, anything, it's pretty much general that they browse through the summer and the more diverse browse you can find, you're going to find the deer and they'll roam uh, bigger areas and just nip. But, you know, you get into fall, um, like Bo said, the cherries, there's a lot of black cherries, big cherries in, in this part of PA that the deer, people sometimes don't key on them. And if it's a good cherry year, um, you get into October, they're going to be really fattening up and them are big open woods. Um, in some areas where we hunt in that part of PA has, um, that does have a mass of, of acorns, but not every year. So there's a, there's a food source and then, um, beach, but the beach are kind of dying off. They also getting into November, um, into December, around probably in the middle of November, I start seeing a lot of pawing and scratching at the ground. Uh, they eat roots. Um, and I know in the winter, like this year in January, um, the deer dug through the snow and eat ferns. Like I, I watched a, a deer for 10 minutes, a button buck, had his head in a hole pulling up ferns and just scratch for like 10 minutes and these other deer came in and didn't even know about it. But, um, pretty much anything green. Um, and there's a lot of, um, like it's, um, tea berry and there's carpet pine. There's different types of green ground coverage up in some of these areas that we hunt and you'll find the deer in the winter, they're going to go for that green. And these deer are, they're browsers by nature and this is what they're made to live off. And, you know, we got a lot of snow this year, but they're going to come out healthy and cause they went into the winter pretty healthy. And, uh, the deer numbers are still, they got them where they need to be to where the deer are, they have enough acreage per deer to, to forage on and be healthy, uh, going into the, into the winter. And last year, Greg shot his deer up there and it was November and, and he took it to the butcher and he said, the butcher said, where'd you get this out, you know, in the Midwest or where? No, I shot it. And the fat on the back, the hind quarters was, I haven't, they're, they're really healthy animals. It just, it was crazy to see that these deer, the browse and live in this forested area are covered with fat and that healthy. Um, mm. As far as like getting into, you know, you got your clear cuts in Ohio and mast is a big thing um, down in that area. Um, if it's a good mass year or they'll, they'll travel to find, or some places in Ohio, I, 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 I've hunted, I see, you know, you're a lot of bait in Ohio. So, um, they might travel to find where they're getting fed too later in the year. That's a thing that'll vacuum the deer out of the woods. Um, not some of the big bucks are just loners. They'll stay up in the, up on the mountains. If there is a acorn crop, but some of the deer, maybe if it's a bad acorn, uh, you know, and then like, there might be someone feeding them or it might be some type of ag nearby that'll kind of pull them deer that way later in the year. But, uh, so yeah, that's what I got for you there. All right. How about you, Bo? Anything, anything else there? Yeah. I mean, I, I think Johnny covered a lot of it, but what, what I'll say in addition to that, I, I definitely think like it, as you're in the, you know, the summertime and everything, they're, they're looking for more of those minerals and, and even some of the newer clear cuts that have a lot of green on them uh, that are growing up. They're browsing a lot. 
And as you get into the beginning of hunting season, so when you're kind of focusing on it in October, if you can find a black cherry crop, that is incredible, but it, they don't seem to last very long on the ground. So it's a short window of time where those can be good apple trees that you can find in some of the bottoms. Uh, that's That can be a, a really great thing to find, especially if you find, you know, a a lone apple tree or uh, an old orchard. You know, a lot of places through Pennsylvania, there was little towns in a lot of these places that are um, that are actually public land now, and they have planted a bunch of apple orchards. So you can find a bunch of apple trees there. And then, you know, as you, and acorns, obviously, but not, not all areas that are in the mountains have oak trees in general. And actually, I've found that areas that don't have oaks they, they can be tougher to figure out exactly what they're feeding on because they're browsing more but at the same time they're more consistent year after year so your spots that don't have those i i find more consistent you know trail cam data uh, i could hunt some of the similar spots year after year and they're a lot more consistent than an area where deer rely on more on acorns that they might you know if this one ridge you know was covered in acorns this year but a mile over was covered the next year then they might you know move quite a bit so it that all depends and and even so like the the biggest thing i'm looking for is the diversity of it and having uh, a lot of brows like johnny said to me you know they'll dig up ferns ferns eat the bulbs off them you know, like to dig a whole bunch of stuff blackberry briars um and and logging cuts i mean logging cuts are huge food source uh, depending on the age but really at any age logging cuts have some sort of a food source it just depends on which ones and and for me i, I like to focus on the ones that are in like a three to eight year old range because they got brows that are you know growing up you know enough where they can feed um a decent amount and and then also um so that's kind of as you get through the, the hunting season and then as you get into like a later season the fresh logging cuts the either from brand new up to three years old seems to really bring them in one because it's getting you know a lot of sunlight and you got some say tops that are laying down that they'll browse on um it, it almost acts as a as a food plot for them in that in those later seasons and you know and if it's a really cold year as you get into hunting season in january any areas around spring seeps while everything else is kind of frozen and tougher than the dig yeah. they can dig it up because it's softer they can get to it um, more greens as johnny said there so that's that's important and and another important thing to note about food is not all areas in the mountains are created equal as far as food goes you know, you get in some of the places like I've hunted in, in southern Ohio or even in north central Pennsylvania, we have, you get these giant, it just seems like most of it's just oak trees. And if you don't have a good acorn crop, it's tough on the deer and there's not much underbrows. And I'm not a biologist, but I've, from what I've read, they call a lot of those areas old heath forests, which means like the soil is acidic. So it's not producing a lot of that good undergrowth that comes up for them to feed on but browse is definitely probably their their primary diet when it comes to that but would you call that old, old what forest old heath h-e-a-t-h -E and i i'm again i'm not 
saying that I, yeah. I know much about them, but that's just, I've, I've been doing some research on trying to figure mm-hmm. out why these types of forests look a certain way or why some of them grow a certain way. And, and that was one of the things that uh, I've found. And, you know, some of the areas I, I've scouted with Johnny, we've noticed, you know, that don't have much browse and typically are rockier. The soil is just kind of acidic and you get some of those, like, I, we call them rock oaks. I'm not sure if that's the technical term for them, but they're just, they're they're not as good producers as as some of the other areas. So when you're describing all this stuff, I the first thing I'm thinking about is how do you find all of these different random types of food sources? Right, and there's big mountainous country, big woods in many cases, and you're talking about browse that you know it's hard to identify unless you're there, and and it's not something as obvious as oh, there's an 80 acre cornfield. Of course, there's going to be a huge draw. It's more like oh, here's a oak tree. Oh, here's a certain set of bushes. Oh, here's a 10 acre cut. Um, and what this what this has got me thinking about is the amount of country you try to focus on when figuring out your strategy for the season. You know, Andy and I here hunting in mixed ag land in Michigan, you know, we could have a 60-acre property and an 80-acre property and a 10-acre property and and be able to get in on deer on any of those small types of properties because stuff's so concentrated. There's so many deer into small areas with great food sources and very specific bedding areas. So give me 80 acres and I might be able to do just fine. But when you're talking these vast expanses with food, very spread with bedding, probably very spread and with lower deer numbers, I got to believe that you just have to operate at a different scale. So this is a very open-ended question, but Bo, how do you think about the scope of the amount of land you need to work with to find a buck? I mean, are you going to this thing? Okay, I'm going to really try to figure out this thousand acres, or I've got to figure out this two hundred acres, or this twenty square miles. What are you operating at? What level are you operating at? <laughs> yeah, that's that's always a, that's always a tough question. But if I'm looking at a new area, a lot of I mean, first of all, I'm focusing on where I think pressure is coming from and i focus on areas that are away from major cities towns anything like that that what i the way i would say it is like you know your typical weekend warrior can't would have trouble getting to they'd have to make a a pretty serious effort at getting there luckily uh, you know a lot of the where i live at is kind of in the middle of nowhere so that helps with that but from there i'm looking at where i can find the most diversity so if i'm looking on Onyx, I'm looking at the uh, the aerial photo. I'm trying to find where you you can you can tell on the map um, if you're in federally owned public land. Onyx has a timber cut feature, so you can actually see those. But even if it doesn't, you can see different timber cuts, and then you can also kind of see where the hemlocks are, and then you can see where there's more like say bigger trees. You can't you can't really tell the browse a whole lot from looking at an aerial map but usually timber cuts have brows in them and depending on the way the photo looks you can you can estimate the the age of that cut and to be able to look at it but i'm looking for the most habitat or yeah habitat diversity and trying to be able to figure out you know what the the vegetation looks like from afar and then i'll narrow it down and try to get in there in the spring and actually walk it and I know that's not always possible um, as far, especially if you're traveling from out of state, but 
nonetheless, I think the most important thing is getting boots on the ground. So even if you have, say, um, you know, five, five to seven day rut hunt and you're going into an area, instead of just, you know, setting up on the first hot sign you see, really walking the lay of the land and figuring that out. And because there's going to be, you know, there's going to be cover that's different, that looks different than um, it, that you won't see on a map. There might be a small patch of something. And then how I correlate that with terrain. So if you can find, you know, as you're thinking of anywhere else in hill country or anywhere that has terrain and you think of your typical, you know, your funnels, um, a lot of times the deer like to bed out and around the points of the of the mountains and uh, which isn't always the case, but they like to bed out around those points. They like to bed on in or on the edges of timber cuts. So those are all things that I'm I'm thinking of and I'm noting and I'm trying to find areas that compound a bunch of those features. And that's where I'm going to focus on. So when I get in there, those are the areas I'm going to first. And I might end up, you know, walking a half mile or a mile a different direction and finding something better that I didn't see on a map. But that gives me a really good starting point. Yeah, that makes sense. What about you, Johnny? Yeah, Bo said it great. I mean, um, it's definitely a diverse um, habitat terrain or age class of the forest cuttings. You can see a lot happening on a aerial onyx uh, or topo. There's a lot going on. Chances are it's going to meet the needs of the deer there because they need all, they they're going to utilize utilize all that um, throughout their their day or, or or how you want to say it but the first thing i do um is i'll look at the onyx and i'll find um where the because most part i'm hunting area that's pressured public well it is public land but where are the hunters going to be i find that diverse area okay where's the hunter parking where's he coming in at is there a parking spot um harder to access areas. I'm kind of stuck on maybe a five square mile area now that I've been into for six, eight years. Uh, some cuttings, some roads cutting through it, kind of flat, gradual, um, hundred feet in elevation change, kind of a plateau. Um, but there's a lot of this beach brush in these areas and under saplings that grow up that make a lot of cover that you can't see from Monix. So you want to get them boots on the ground. But also what I'm learning now is a lot of guys are starting to hunt this public land, these mountain deer in an area that I was hunting five years ago. That was like a mile and a half walk gated road all the way back and out on a point of this mountain goes out around. And I had good luck out there with deer. And uh, that's where I seen the biggest buck that would go there. And then, in the last couple of years, I'd run cameras. I didn't even hunt there. I just run cameras randomly and I get more hunters and more hunters. And it seemed like the people were going to these, it was, it was uh, time consuming to walk there half hour or so, 45 minutes. Um, it was a pretty gra gradual trail, easy to get to. And, um, these people were starting to go, I want to get back in there and, so this year I kind of started hunting halfway back and that's where the bucks were hanging. They weren't, and I walked the, the logging road out and 
seeing cameras, seeing stands, and the sign would fall off. Like I could really see sign, you know, fresh sign, uh, deer shit, tracks, rubs. You would see the scrapes, but um, probably yearlings. But the bigger deer are really, they really know their area, and the hunters are pretty typical of what they do, and they're on to them like white on rice, these deer know. So that's exactly what I'm looking for. But you got to have the boots on the ground or at least get to an area, drop a bunch of cameras and see. I'm not just looking for the deer. I'm looking for the hunters, see how they're going, where them guys are hunting. And But that's the biggest thing, like Bo said, the diverse diversity, you know, it has a little bit of everything happening, a little bit of everything terrain. Um, so now these deer, and then like I said, yeah, hard to reach location, um, and maybe where the wind, so maybe the wind's blowing in one direction a lot. It's hard. And you, you might have to go down over this mountain and come back up this other mountain just to access it. Well, um, because most of the people will maybe go straight to that spot and the deer is on to the hunters. They know they're onto the gig, the gigs up. So I kind of do different things than what the normal hunter does. Cause pretty much, um, they're onto you, the mature deer that are living there. Um, so that's the biggest thing I try to find is how the pressure is affecting this deer. Because if it wasn't for the pressure in these areas, you could hunt that rub, that scrape, and they would they would probably you can hunt the sign a lot better because they won't be as nocturnal or be afraid to come to that area till right before dark or something. So you got to kind of not take i mean the sign tells you the deer is there but if the pressure is there that they're worried about survival they're definitely afraid of you they're going to live accordingly and they might just be off a little bit of that diversity you've got to kind of figure out you know you kind of talk and that's another thing i like you're always thinking my brain's always turning and learning different from year to year different deer move into the area it's always evolving the force is growing it's changing different deer see it in a different way that's why i like being out there and learning and learning everything and then i talk about finding these little nooks so we found a couple big bucks this year in 150 class pushing 150 158 we were kind of hanging around together and they were kind of in that area where the people were going all the way back this road and and i was about halfway back and there was i call them scenes and little nooks where these deer know they're safe that nobody's hitting up and uh so i uh actually a couple days ago um i headed in the area they were coming from not where i was getting on camera but just across the creek and i did some hiking and just found big tracks you know i got down in away from the road and uh, i wouldn't be surprised if he hangs out in there a lot of anxious to get in there and shed hunt but it's an area that it's easy to overlook an area and really with all the cover in the areas. Now, this is the area I'm hunting. So, I mean, an area that might be in Ohio, West Virginia, some open woods might be different, but I'm sure there's a nook or a theme that these deer, these mature deer that are um, eluding these humans, they're going to use that you might have to get out there and, and walk and hang cameras to find it. But that's the, that's the thing I, I find nowadays. And it might be like five acres or something, just something little that you know maybe that's what you call his bedroom but just knows where he's safe during the day then they do uh there is a lot of randomness to keep you know predators guessing i find a lot of these mature bucks have random movements 
And if, you know, maybe sometimes we were trying to hunt him through a camera and he might be a daylight and all short. Um, that's what keeps him alive is doing random. I, you know, track during the winter and it's like, I'm like, I would put a camera here and he walks like, I'm what? Why would you walk there? That's not the path of least, you know, but it's just how they, they're nomadic in a certain way. Um, and it's just all of that, that I, that intrigues me. And I thought, and I did talk to some people that tried to find a scientific reason why the deer do this or that. Some say that it's, there's no science behind, by, by how they move, you know, but the biggest thing I find is pressure, um, like even with both said earlier, they're they're made to survive and, and carry on, and and their biggest predator is the human, and so that's how they're these deer are getting away is uh, adapting to the humans. So, uh, so on that note, then you know, the, finding these little nooks, finding these little spots where these big old bucks do feel safe in these vast environments, it's got to be awfully hard to pinpoint that little tiny nook out of 5,000 acres or 10,000 acres or whatever the scale is that we're operating on here. You mentioned several times trail cameras and, and I've also seen just, you know, across your social media and different things like that. You, you seem to be pretty prolific when it comes to how you use trail cameras and the information you turn up. Can you just detail how specifically you're using cameras in these environments? Because I know it's different than what I'm doing here in Southern Michigan or Iowa or whatever, you know, how many cameras are you running across these landscapes? You know, exactly what kind of spots are you putting them on? You know, what is the key information you're trying to get? I'd love to understand all that detail. Definitely scrapes are a big thing. I think communicating up here with kind of me and bow hunt, um, definitely have them on them. And sometimes there's a lot of hunters. I try to get them up to the tree and I always try to, honestly, as opposed to when I was 20 years old, I stay away from trails. There's not so many trails up in this area because it's kind of, they're like, they kind of roam. Um, so I try to stay away from trails now if I'm looking for that mature animal, but definitely scrapes and yeah, like that nook I'm, I'm talking about. Um, and then a lot of times, since they are nomadic, I'll put three cameras. I tell people, uh, don't just depend on one camera. Try to get three or four. And I try to, I don't like to get a broadside shot at a deer because a lot of times your trigger won't catch it. Try to get, if he's walking, I don't like a straight arm, maybe like on a 45 kind of um, broadcast your camera. But every time I go in the woods, I'll take, well, I went on to hiking. I'll take two or three. I'll just pull them around my waist. Sometimes I'm pressured with time. I just want to run in the woods and look around. Uh, I'll take two or three because if you take one, you end up, I've done it. You'll walk, look for the best spot, and you get back to the truck and you still got your camera. So I try to take at least two. Then you could drop one and find a decent spot. But um, as far as where, I guess maybe um, um, kind of more of a little bit of a pinch that kind of where he has to walk, but it's usually not narrowed down to like, like a, a trail. I just kind of feel like he's going to move through here, whether it's cover, he's going to gravitate an edge, um, but definitely scrapes maybe. And I found sometimes rubs 
aren't always scientific to the point where he's there a lot. I find sometimes like you put it on rubs and how do you know he didn't just kind of um, make those rubs went out of anger one time he come through and he might not ever come back again, but that's, they're all individuals and they might be claiming that territory. Sometimes I think they put rubs there because they're not actually there as much. So they want to kind of mimic them being there by putting the signpost there. Um, and he might be somewhere else. Um, but it's weird. I find a lot this year, I said, this is going to be good. This, I'm going to put cameras here. I got them. I'm going to get them on camera. And I'll leave it go. You know, getting into October, I'll let it go a week or so. I want to see what's there. And I like to check my camera. Sometimes I check them at night. I don't want to ruin the spot if it's a maybe clear cut and I feel like the wind's blowing in there. Um, I'll wait till 9 o'clock at night because I feel like they're, they're um, guarded for humans. Or they're probably never been pressured at night by humans. So it's kind of like whatever. But I'll check cameras at night. Um, but I found this year a lot, I would put cameras, maybe like a scrape or a little bit of rubs. I think he's coming through here. And if I feel like the spots I put cameras and thought I'd see deer this year, I didn't get anything. I spots and I was like, oh, I'll just throw one here. And it turned up deer. So I try to get a bunch of cameras. I'm, um, like in PA 15, 20, I'm, I'm running. Um, but, uh, the more you have, the more knowledge you can gain by getting them out there and just learning and seeing what's there. Cause like I said, I don't, I think it's going to be a good spot and here. It's a bus and the other spot. And then I start putting pieces of the puzzle together. And the one deer I hunted this year, he kind of, he was here in September and then I threw my cameras up in October. He was a clear cut guy. I started hunting there. He disappeared. And then he was hitting this one scrape and I actually set up on him one morning and I spooked him out of there. And then, um, he gradually moved downstream. So he like started here. And I think it was all because of hunting pressure that this deer adapted his lifestyle through the hunting season. But, um, I just feel like the more you're seeing, you know, maybe it is a buck bed or it's hard. I guess it's kind of hard to explain, but if you've got two or three cameras, you can go out there and you, you know, you find a sign, uh, put some cameras up. Um, if you just got a hunch, sometimes it's, you might find that seeing that edge, maybe. Um, I can't really describe because it's all it's like a feeling. Um, it's not all has the same type of thing. You know, it's just how they feel because they don't, that's how they are wired. It's a bit that how they feel. This feels good. I'm going to move to here. I don't, I don't see any um, um, hunters in here. And actually the deer this year was walking out on the logging road that went all the way back from that point where them guys hunting, it was high noon, it was 70 degrees, and 50 yards off that long road, I had to, off that long road, I had a deep snow. And it was me, and I thought about focus. Um, I was walking out on that logging road, I was walking like a human, and that, I know it was one of them big 150-inch deer was in there, maybe, maybe only 50, 70 yards, he was pissed, he snorted at me. <sighs> Every time I walked, because in his head, I think he wanted to cross that logging road. It was like, that's a human. It just pissed him off. But he knew that he was safe in there 50 yards. That was a scene. And he knew people walked out. But it's just, it's just wild to be around him and, and experience that. And every time every I stopped, I looked over nothing. Then I walked like a human. And just the noise of a human walking through the leaves just irritated him. And he was like, 
kind of above most of the hunters, and I'm sure he's still out there now. And then we'll him. Um, but yeah, every time I'd start walking like a human, he'd just like piss, snort at me. And it was that's where he was in, in along the bucks moved during high, high noon, you know, but a lot of randomness. I mean, you know, Mark, you, I could go on and just take one story into another and keep talking, <laughs> but um, yeah. I can relate to that, Johnny. I can relate to that myself. Uh, I w- it's funny you talk about how these deer sometimes just get lost themselves in, in that. I mean, their movements are random. It's, it's hard for us to pin down and uh, God, I wish they'd be more considerate of us and make things more simple, but uh, <laughs> they don't. Uh, Bo, what about you when it comes to cameras? What's, What's your take on that specifically? So I, I do run a lot of cameras and I do weigh a lot of input on cameras, but I have, I have kind of a couple different strategies. So if I'm, if I'm hunting a brand new area and this is my first time going in, um, I, I typically try to put cameras at different elevations and then also around different vegetation type features. So, but 90% of them are on scrapes. So I'll, I'll definitely say that, and that if that's any time of the year. So whether that's in the summertime, um, they'll still work those licking branches. I usually spray like a forehead gland scent on it, and um, they'll, they'll work those licking branches just about year round. But so I'll, I'll try to get different elevations to be able to to learn it. And a lot of times I won't even hunt that area the first year. So I'll just run cameras, leave them up all year, come back this time of year and pick them up and, and try to learn from it. So I'll, I'll try to spread them out quite a bit. And then as I get to focusing on these, these uh, areas, say I find a specific buck, like this past year I was hunting um, – a specific deer that that was just was incredible and but the, after i ran ran i think it was 13 cameras in this area i ran a lot more than I normally would in a, a new spot but i'd found a shed in the spring so it made me want to want to try to learn a little more and out of all those cameras and i had them not that far apart like some of them would only be 40 yards apart, but it was on a different elevation down below, um, on a different scrape. I, I ran a lot of, well, I didn't run a lot of cameras. I ran a couple cameras on some big signpost rubs, which is something that was kind of new to me this year, but I found I had really, really good results from a few of these specific rubs. And what I learned about this deer was he was only using uh, a certain portion of it. And there was a lot of hunting pressure. But the hunting pressure was on the top and also from the bottom. So on this steep side hill that was just thick hemlock cover, you can't, you know, when I would when I would hunt in there, you can't see more than 20 yards in any direction. And there was three cameras that that deer focused on that was there quite a bit. So now, like, going into this year, what I would do is cluster more cameras you know, trying to figure out, you know, where he might be living, at least for during the hunting season. And so maybe I might stay around those elevation lines, but move down the ridge further and, you know, put some more and try to, you know, get more consistent daylight photos, um, more stuff like that. But I'm, I'm focusing around 
uh, different terrain features and and then also vegetation features as I talked about and but scrapes are the the majority of it and then if say if I know of an area say there's a a, a timber cut that um I don't know anywhere from 10 to 20 years old it's grown up quite a bit they they tend to like to bed in those type of areas I'll run cameras on the inside of those on some of the logging trails where there's um where there's you know say I find a big community type scrape big licking branch broke off i'll run them in there and a lot of times hunters will have trouble hunting in those areas because there's not any good trees to get in because they're not big enough to put a tree stand in but they're but they, they still they provide a lot of cover and security for the deer so i'll run them closer to those bedding areas and just i won't check them unless i'm you know specifically hunting them but cameras are a huge learning tool for me personally and, and what i'll do with with that data is i'll take all my cameras for the year and i have like a um it's a google sheet so like an excel spreadsheet essentially that i'll i write down the location the specific location that i had it on like i'll have the, the general area the specific location say i say i'd name it hemlock side hill scrape and then I have the the buck identification, how I would kind of either name it or figure out a way to identify that deer. And then I'll write down the date, time, weather, wind direction, and anything else that might be prevalent to it. And just kind of keep a running log of that. So if I'm hunting a specific deer, you can learn a lot by doing that. Because I've found that even when I run a lot of cameras and I'll get this information, it goes in and out of my head just as fast as is a lot faster than I'd like and I don't remember all of it. So for me, by writing that down or, or typing it up, I guess, it helps me to be able to review it and learn because you know you can you can definitely have success uh, in, you know in your first year hunting a spot, but that historical data from cameras is is huge. If you can hunt an area you know multiple years in a row, you can learn so much and, and and you have to take that a little bit with a grain of salt because you know as food sources shift and change and like we mentioned you know earlier about say there's not any acorns if that area had acorns all those things can change but it give it it's it, you know an odds multiplier it's helping you gain some more knowledge that you wouldn't have had otherwise so I, i'm running in in pennsylvania alone i'm running probably around I think just over 30 cameras right now. Pay attention here because this is a hell of a good service. It's called the Wellness Company. Picture this, okay? You wake up, you got a scratchy throat, you're all congested, you got a runny nose, you got a cough, whatever. And you weigh your options like you tough it out, get sick, take time off work, try to get a doctor's appointment sometime in the next few months, wait two hours at urgent care and sit in a room full of sick, sick folks, or you open your medical emergency kit. You match your symptoms to the doctor-recommended prescription, and you start on the right meds right away. These medical emergency kits, not a first aid kit, all right? It comes with doctor-prescribed meds to treat over 39 medical issues. So, on hand, strong antibiotics for infections of all types. Plus, a doctor's easy guide so you know exactly what to take and when. No waiting to see the doctor. No waiting at the pharmacy. It's all in there. 
Every home should have at least one medical emergency kit. Order yours online in minutes. Your kit will be rushed to your door. Get 15% off at urgentcarekit.com slash meat eater and use promo code meat eater. That's promo code meat eater at urgentcarekit.com slash meat eater. Hey, everybody knows Weber grills. I've been using Weber grills my whole life and check it out. They got a pellet grill, the Weber Searwood pellet grill. Now with a pellet grill, you can smoke, roast, and sear what I like to do on the same grill. You can go from low and slow, okay, on smoke boost mode, which gives you great smoke at 180 degrees, or crank this thing all the way to a heat sear at 600 degrees. It's got a full great sear zone, so you can put more food on the flame. This this, this is my way of bull saying. If I was going to cook roast one way, that's how I like to do it, sear roast. Utilize the smoke boost setting to intensify that smoky flavor. Direct flame cooking creates searing, crisping, and browning. Food's going to look as good as it tastes. This grill gets hot in 15 minutes. Cleanup is easy. Cook confidently with intuitive digital controls at the grill and enjoy the sleek, easy-to-use surface. You can also add a heavy-duty rotisserie or rust-resistant griddle insert to up your game. Get fired up for your new Weber Searwood pellet grill. So let me run an assumption by you guys and tell me if I'm right or wrong here. Uh, It's my assumption, as I'm hearing you guys talk about these deer, that these bucks are... Being that they're relatively nomadic, as you guys have described, that when you're running trail cameras, you're not really getting a specific pattern like you might get by me here where I might be able to tell you based on trail cameras or observation that, man, this buck is going to come walking over this creek crossing every other day or three times a week or something. Maybe you can't get that level of a pattern on these deer because their range is so vast and their food and bedding is so diverse that they're much more random in those movements. So A, is that correct? And then B, assuming that's correct, is the main thing you're trying to get with these trail cameras simply confirmation of their general presence at the time of year? So can you just confirm, okay, the big eight pointer is back in the area. And if I know he's back in the area, I'm going to hunt this general region because he's here. Is that the case? Or do you actually nail down like he's coming through here, this specific spot for this specific reason, and you pattern him to that level of detail? Uh, does that make sense, Bo? Yeah, it does. And and your assumption is right. Uh, there's, I, I personally, maybe Johnny has a different opinion on it, but I have not been able to pattern a specific deer to the level of i know he's going to come by this spot um you know every three days so like so what i'm trying to do is get the general area and so if i'm looking at the specific hunting season what i'll take like that data from say i pull my camera in mid-october and i'm going to be hunting the the following week or whatever that is it depends on that type of time of year on how I would hunt that. I might, you know, hunt that specific spot. You know, maybe it's a, a good scrape that it's the end of October and I'm hoping he's going to come by again. But a lot of times, like you said, I'm just trying to confirm he's in the area. And, you know, say I had that picture October 24th and I'm in there on November 1st. Well, I'm going to focus more on this 
doe bedding area that might be a quarter mile away that has some similar you know he's has a security and is what's on his mind right now which is the does so those are so that's how i'm kind of using that data and then so that's for the specific season if i'm using it say i had the camera picture this year and i'm looking at it next year one of the things i'll pay attention to is the time of year that he came through the specific date and but more importantly is the the weather and any other conditions that might make you know make him repeat himself or maybe you know during this four day stint you know every year from november 4th to 7th he might go back to this area check this specific doe bedding area or whatever it might be or that you know he comes to this scrape in the third to fourth week of october there's a lot of guessing that goes into it but i i try to use that that data and then also my knowledge for the of the area to, to give my, you know, I guess my, my best guess as to how I would set up in that in accordance to that. Okay. And what about you, Johnny? Yeah, I think it's more um, a confirmation that a deer exists, but there is, I'd say, a little more of a pattern when you're in the, the middle end of October when it's uh, the hunting pressure is lower in these bigger areas and these vast mountain mountainous or regions or whatever you want to call them. Um, and there's, the does aren't in the heat. They're just kind of, they're going to hit these scrapes to where that one big eight, I had them hitting the scrapes pretty regularly, uh, right around dark, just after dark. But it was like, he was, the thermals, I know were draw coming, they're all getting drawn down this drainage. And it's like, I just want to cry. Cause I'm like, when he's on this type of pattern, he's doing it religiously, not I mean, like clockwork, but I'm getting some decent pictures of him every couple of days coming out of these scrapes and because he got the odds are in his favor and that's what he wants. And that's what he lives by having the odds in his favor. So that was, I, I didn't really hunt there. I kind of got in there. Then I got in there during a rut. And then you know what? He never even touched the scrapes, you know? So it's like, and that's a, this is a new deer that I'd found this year it was a place I found shed hunting last year. So I'm just learning about this animal. It's like a whole new world, you know, a whole nother deer. But the, the other one I was kind of after this year, just for example, the two deer that um, I was running cameras trying to chase is was an older, more, more mature uh, nine-year-old, eight-year-old, to where um, I had some pictures of him. This is going on four years now, and I had him in this one area. Um, he was three, four years old, really aggressive had the whole clear cut rubbed up beds everywhere. And I mean, the first time I hunted in there, I had my bow back on him, probably 140 class, three or four year old, and just really, um, a lot of testosterone, aggressive deer and, um, claimed that area more of like a 20 year old, uh, human, uh, that has a lot of, a, a young guy that has a lot of, maybe wants a fight or something comparable to that to where the next year, um, I went in there and he just, he wasn't there. So you can kind of, their individuals are different. So you can kind of use year to year knowledge from your cameras and your hunting. Um, so the next year I went in there and, but it didn't happen because he disappeared and he moved. I didn't catch him until two years later. I picked him up and then I started following him again. It was because these deer die off. They jockey for positions and 
where they feel more comfortable and where they want to live and all this is going on out there. And, and, but once you get to sometimes in that groove around six, seven, eight, you can kind of get a little more pattern. Like, so this eight point I was hunting this year, I caught him up in this clear cut and then he kind of moved. He's worked his way downstream, like further away from humans as the season went on. And he's up in that clear cut and I never, I didn't hunt it cause it was early in October. Then he, I caught him and that one day I spoke to him then further downstream, like, uh, November, I, he come in, I thought at first it was like first time I really started hunting a rut and I had him right there and, um, and the wind just swirled, hit him and he took off. But I, I think I could use the knowledge I have for my cameras and my hunting this year because i feel like at his age i feel like he's going to be there next year and i kind of can kind of know where to hunt him throughout the season to catch him but as far as the cameras are considered um i can maybe pattern like bo said maybe within a time zone a few four or five days i might be able to catch him here because of um data that i collected from this year but like i said you get to that three four five year old age it might, uh, they're not really mature yet. They're still kind of maybe learning their area and where they want to live. But like that big eight point this year, um, like I said, he kind of was hitting them scrapes. But when he started doing that, the odds were really in his favor. You you couldn't even hunt him. But mainly confirmation that the deer was there. And then I try to find his kind of away from the rest of the deer herd there, but not there. And that's why I said it's like a balance scale. I tell people, it's like, yeah, this situation i'm going this way and it's tipping the scale this way but that's this situation because people say sometimes when i talk on a podcast they'll say this one time that the complete opposite the other time because sometimes you need to do that you'll be using this tactic and you're tilting the scale this way then boom you hit you got to go to complete opposite and do it but you just and that's why i like talking about having a lot of tools in your toolbox and a different you know if you're changing a bolt you got a 12 millimeter but you know the next bolt might be a three quarter inch or something. You need a bunch, to, um, bunch of information, bunch of knowledge uh, to use, bunch of tools in your toolbox. But as far as the the cameras, mainly confirmation and, um, but like I said, they and I try to gravitate away from the rest of the herd because they aren't. They don't see themselves as a yearling and tooth like they're their own individual um, animals. These mature deer and they live differently too. Yeah survive and carry these racks so yeah hey uh, hold on mark if i could step in here for a second i wanted to bring up a point that johnny kind of um what he was talking about there i mean johnny i mean that was a similar situation i i hunted with johnny this past year and actually killed my buck which was a buck that he had a lot of history with and going in there he had brought up you know about this deer and you know, two years ago of trail camera data, you know, in in and around those dates, you know, spending time in that area. You, you remember, John, we were talking about that when you were you were showing me pictures of uh, the, the buck I ended up killing when uh, he was in that area a few years in the path around that time of year. But he had disappeared for a couple months and, you know, mm-hmm. kind of going on some of that historical data there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. It's amazing yep. how it that was, uh, how that works. It was a it was a little bit of a better acorn crop down low, and years I knew he was there on that point in around that mountain. It was 
hard to get to. And um, he had a lot of odds in his favor. It was, that was a, a pretty rugged area, good elevation um, to not many people. And he had cover. He, he just, um, he doesn't sit and think in his head, okay, this is what I need. Like he's checking a checklist. It's the feelings he gets as he lives through his life. What he needs is security, is the food cover, and and that's um, and like I said, it's all about getting the odds. He has the odds in his favor most of the time, and you got to find that angle on them to get the odds in your favor. Yeah. But yeah, that historical data on that deer bow got um, told us he was there, and actually had a camera running a couple hundred yards. Can't been couple hundred yards from where we bumped him and it was a cell cam i ran i didn't have a picture it was a big scrape on his point like you would think he'd hit it i had him a couple times in october beginning of november he never caught him on that big scrape and it was like four scrapes right on this point within 10 15 yards of each other had him a couple times in november then i think bo got his deer was i don't know it was december bo that you shot your deer i didn't even have him on and i know he was he was laying within 100, 200 yards of that's great. It just tells yeah. you, like, well, it throws a lot out the window right there, you know? <laughs> so. It's true. What do you think, Andy? Where's your head on this? What, what, are you, what are you wanting to move towards next? Yeah, well, um, Bo, you touched on this a little bit. Um, I want to just ask a little bit at least about uh, buck bedding, um, you know, specifically these these older bucks that you that you guys are – or you're after, um, you mentioned, you know, the points and, you know, kind of inside the edge of the clear cuts, which is basically what I see too, down in the uh, rugged hill country that I hunt. Um, is there any other locations in the mountains where you're finding these older bucks bed? Um, and are you seeing this kind of maybe a two or three part question? So you guys can, can talk on it for a bit, but are you, I, I know I, you guys are saying that you are seeing as they get older um, some historical data as far as like showing up in in certain areas during certain times of the season. But say outside of the rut, are you guys seeing um, these bucks stay relatively tight to a core bedding area um, during that time frame? Say maybe say like you know early season, you know through you know, late October or something before they start kind of venturing out more, are they, are they staying roughly in an area? And, and then also like on, in, in hill country, you know, typically you see most of the bedding on the lee side. Is it the same, you know, do you guys see that the same in the mountains or is, are there some, uh, you know, variances there? Um, how about you, Bo? Uh, so yeah. And, uh, yeah, to, to a lot of your points there, but so <laughs> the leeward, the leeward side of the, the hill they definitely um favor to bed now i will not say that's a hundred percent that that that's what they're going to do um but a lot of times you can do that the scenario we just talked about with my deer from this last year that's what he was doing leeward side um down over the hill but a lot of the times you know they they like they like that thick cover but they also like to be able to see so whether that's using the terrain say they're over on that leeward side, just over like where it's where it gets super steep down below and they can look at it and then either have some cover to their back, but they want to be able to see. And then when it comes to, say, uh, a logging cut, um, either, you know, 
towards the edge where they can see out on some of the, the big open timber or on the interior of those cuts where you have like a, a little opening in a lot of areas we have gas wells old gas wells from 70s and 80s um, that will create these little openings or it might be a, an old log landing and but they like to be able to see i there's there's again there's always variances there but for the most part i've noticed that these bucks even if they're in thick cover they always have a good visual and more more so than the wind uh, i think the wind is is huge but i i feel like their their visuals are a huge part in that and so that that would be um but as far as um you know whether some bucks stay in their you know a core area during that time of year or if they're spread out that honestly comes down to the specific deer i've found deer that are more repeatable as far as where i think they're betting and when i say you know that might be a five to 15 acre area on what i would consider their core bedroom um and then there's other deer that one deer might be bedding out in this point and then might be a couple ridges over a few days later and that they they kind of move around a little bit but i, I definitely think that the, the food is the the biggest dictation of that and then also their own personality and how they they kind of react but if you got an area that has a bunch of different food and it kind of meets all their needs they don't typically want to go just venturing out outside of the rut for for no good reason that's just uh, again some of my experience with it how about you johnny anything to add there yeah um both said are pretty good definitely a visual uh in their mind they got an escape route um planned if, if something comes in um and like i said i don't think they sit there okay if someone comes this way i'm gonna run that way but they just can feel it um definitely maybe some cover to the back and see out front and some of these areas that I hunted last year were really rugged down near Ohio. And they, during into the hunting season, when the people are starting to hunt, they're in the hard, the, the rugged leeward sides down low to where they might venture top when the, when the thermals come down. Um, mainly a, a visual scene around them, maybe a little bit of cover, a big, a lot of times in them wide open big oaks and that it's just a big tree that you lay up against maybe a log um and then sometimes they you know through october when they're 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 feeding and the pressure is low it might be just they might just lay down for an hour on top of a ridge or somewhere where they could see um but yeah it's like both said is an individual preference to where like i said that one three-year-old that year he's all bedding in that clear cut i haven't seen it since that's what he did. He felt comfortable there. Um, there was a lot of more flat land, and uh, it's not typical of the area I've been talking about here that I'm picturing in my head where these eight points are. Don't have a lot of um, elevation change. It's kind of plateau-ish type area to where I think there's a lot of random bedding. Um, I'm going to really get into where that big eight point is here um, and hike that and maybe try to find... And you're going to watch a bed um, that a deer will lay down and uh, maybe the leaves will be pressed down. Then it might be a day or two and this bed's gone. You know what I mean? So that's one thing to think about is observe a bed and it's not going to stay there forever. You know, so you, 
even sometimes I ran cameras to where I see a deer bed down in front of my camera. Then you look at it and even see, didn't even look like a deer lay there. So keep that in mind. I've been kind of keeping an eye on that. Uh, bed only lasts so long. Um, so that's something to think about when looking for beds. Why don't I see a lot of beds? Cause they don't, especially if he lay there for an hour or so and he gets up and wind comes and blows rains and, and tell a deer lay there, but um, definitely they just got to feel secure for the time they're laying there for one reason or another. The odds got to be their way, whether it's sight, smell, you know, we're just really thick and they're hidden. Um, so yeah, it could be definitely a, a, a wide, wider range. It's it's hard to just keep a, a black and white answer because um, there is a lot of different things I experience and seen. Yeah, but yeah, both sure. Are, really well yeah and and, and to add on that a little bit you know as johnny was talking i was thinking a little bit more like as far as identifying like specific areas where a a deer might bet or a buck might bet is like so when you're looking out those points those leeward bridges around you know around those points some of the this isn't always the case but a lot of the times you'll find rubs that are kind of on their exit trails and typically when i know i'm you know getting closer to a, a potential like kind of bedding spot the rubs will start to cluster a little more so you start seeing them sporadic up on top of the ridge as they start diving down over on like say a not so beaten down trail you'll start to see them getting closer together and closer together and and you don't always find a specific bet but that that to me has been one of the more consistent things that I've found. Or if you're looking at like a, a timber cut, if you start finding a lot of rubs on the edges of them, uh, then, you know, that buck might be on the interior a little bit. And, and you know, so you, you kind of have an idea. I mean, I, I think hunting specific beds are, is, ext- is extremely difficult. And, but having that general area of where they're bedding and then figuring out, what they're you know a specific deer what they're using more often than than not and that's where you know cameras come into play as far as you know putting them around that potential bedding areas on you know big primary scrapes uh you know maybe it is a a rub line or whatever it might be but by running cameras around there you kind of figure out which ones they like to use more than others but um there's not, there's not always a pattern, but if you're looking at the odds again, trying to get the odds in your favor, figuring out that bedding, you know, after understanding kind of the terrain and some of the vegetation they like, looking for that sign that that leads up into that. So that's, um, I guess that was just a little bit of an add-on I was thinking about. Yeah. So when it comes to actually hunting these deer, you know, one of the things, again, just kind of comparing and contrasting my home turf with yours you know, here it's, you can clearly, you know, determine deer bed in this kind of spot and they're going to feed in this kind of spot and they're going to travel in between the two. And that's usually pretty easy to tell where those things are happening and, you know, what direction that travel is going to happen to, right? Because it's, you know, in the morning, they're going to be heading from the food back to bed and the afternoons are going to go from the bedding out to these obvious food sources. When you're hunting this big timber, big hilly country, and the bedding and feed is is so spread all over the place in a lot of these cases, it seems, 
the, just the, the travel pattern itself on any given day just seems like it would be so random too. I mean, I feel you could almost throw a dart at a map and say, well, he might go that way today. How, how do you, how do you make those decisions? And I, and I realize every time you go out, there's different. So I realize every situation is different. So what I'm looking for here is insight into your decision-making process. So not a specific thing, but like, okay, when you're heading in on this kind of day, what are the two or three things you have to determine or answer to say, okay, I'm going to go to X spot? Because it seems like it's a harder decision to make where you're hunting than it is where I'm hunting. Or maybe maybe it's not. Maybe, maybe that randomness sets you free and you don't need to overthink it. And you just say, hey, I'm going to go to a good terrain feature. I'm going to sit it out and what happens happens. Uh, I don't know. Uh, Bo, what do you think about that? Uh, so, yeah, that's that's the million-dollar question. But uh, when – so if specifically, if you're – say like a, an, an earlier season, I'll, I'll kind of break it down into the season here. Maybe this isn't exactly how your question was worded. But, you know, the first thing I'm thinking about is the time of year when it comes into my decision-making and what, what are their primary focuses? What do they want with that? You know, security is always something that's – important to them the rut it can kind of go either way but I'm, I'm looking at the time of year and also you know deer like to communicate in one way or another so if i were to if i were to put the odds in most of the time of the year scrapes are something that really that i focus on a lot near cover near bedding type of cover i'll set up on those scrapes um, if, if the hunting pressure is higher, you know, that's something else that comes into consideration. Then I'm trying to figure out areas that the, the hunters might not be in. And that, that doesn't mean you have to go, you know, another mile in that, like, you know, Johnny gave an example of, you know, actually coming back closer, but that might just be that hidden nook again, using Johnny's terms, but off the side of a hill or something that, you know, that is a little bit, um, overlooked and and for for me i'm not focusing on the the amount of deer i'm focusing on a certain type of deer so there's primary scrapes in some of those areas that that might kind of funnel them through but they also have that security so you know side hills um i'm having a little bit of trouble answering this question just because of the the broadness of the uh the situations and the time of years but it's really, poor it's I'm poor thinking, it's poor work on my part for giving you too broad of a question no, <laughs> that no, is the truth <laughs> I, I i get what you're asking and it's just it, it's a difficult answer but i'm really um, I, I guess to try to sum that up is i'm focusing on the time of year which will dictate what my next move is and and if for this direction of this question here i'll just say focusing on when most people would be hunting, you know, say pre-rut rut time frame, I am going to focus on, say, the end of October. I'm looking for those primary scrapes. I'm looking at the, the scrapes that have the security that they're going to work in daylight or have the potential to work in daylight close to that, that bedding cover. And then as it gets into more of the, the rut time frame, you know, beginning of November into the second week of November, I'm focusing more on the the doe bedding areas, which typically is in more of that thicker cover and hunting the edges of that. And the wind is never 
consistent, but I try to, again, use what are going to be the best odds for the wind. I'm not a person that, that hunts solely. Like I say, if there's a, um, the wind starts shifting, I'm not going to climb out of my stand. It's, It's going to shift this, you know, can you blow a deer out? Yes. But I'd be bouncing around from tree to tree all day if that was what my mindset was with it. So focusing on, you know, the the edge of those doe bedding areas, but it always I always seem to find a scrape in the picture. There's always a scrape um, around me, um, whether that's at 15 yards right that I'm kind of sitting over or within 100 yards of it. It's always kind of in my my picture there. So. Again, Mark, I apologize if I answered that question poorly, but that was kind of what was on my in my mind. You answered it better than I asked it, so <laughs> yeah, that was pretty good, though. Yeah, what about I think, uh, Johnny? For sure, he said it great. He said some good points there that I liked, and the one he said was overlooked. And going back to the bedding, um, all the knowledge and I have of the area and the deer that I'm hunting in the area, I kind of funnel it down to he's hanging out here. That's the best I could do. It's a shame, but all them hours in the woods and all this time. And yeah, if you knew exactly where he was and you could say I would hunt here, but you get to the point where he's hanging out here with that bedding. So, and it's usually an overlooked area, like Bo said, but don't go to an overlooked area because there's places you can go that are just so vast and there's no deer. It's an overlooked area that's in amongst um, the rest of the deer community. You know, he has his own little area. And I usually don't hunt much in October because of my work. And a lot of times I try, I got to travel. I don't, I live at least two, two and a half hours to these places I hunt. So for me to go up and hunt, maybe an evening on a scrape that might take me a 45 minute walk to get to and stuff like that. So I kind of just focused my time into November. So like Bo said, talking about November rut, your odds are a little better, but then again, I'm starting to see that the hunters are pretty, uh, there's a lot of hunters starting to hunt when the time is right. And the deer are just going to shift and adapt to them hunters to where I know this year during a ride, it wasn't, it kind of sucked a little bit up in these. And I'm wondering, and my head is because of the hunters, but um, later in the year, I'm starting to, in the January, uh, although this year I had three different states I was hunting in January. So that was tough, but I feel like I got a better grip on where the deer can be found later because the pressure is low. But um, yeah, as far as, um, like Bo said, find that overlooked area and but it but also in amongst the rest of the the deer herd and yeah a scrape is something that i've I've caught them on camera in these areas midday um because the population is pretty equal buck to doe so it's not like there's uh so there the buck that doesn't have the doe or is waiting for the next one he he might can't not control himself and be checking these scrapes throughout the day so i mean both said a good um I liked what he said there and that was what I could uh, put into it. So, yeah. Well, and, and Mark, the one thing I, w- I would add again, as, as after I answer, I think of things I should have said, but there was, there was a, uh, you know, I was talking about the edges, say like of a doe bedding area. One thing that is important to note is 
I've been, say, set up on the edge of a, a thicket where it was it was so thick that it was difficult to be able to shoot into. So I'd back off on the edge where I see some trails and some does. But a lot of the time, those bucks don't want to get out in that open. They'll just be just inside that cover. So even if you can, you only have a small window setting up to where you can shoot into that cover, even if it's 10 yards or five yards into it is is critical as far as like when you're really focusing in on your setup and and i i tend to find a lot of my areas that i'm not able to shoot over 20 yards so that seems to be a very uh a very uh repeatable characteristic of the hunting spots that i'm in is is not being able to shoot very far because the if you're focusing on the the more mature mature deer that they're using that cover to their favor and they're they're re- in really liking there there's more opportunity for them to move within that cover within that thick those thick areas than than they are in the in the wide open yeah yeah that's certainly something we can relate to uh even out here the you always want to be able to shoot into that thick stuff you know yep. uh, you guys have talked a lot about you know up high ridges points spurs plateaus, different things like that. But there's also the opposite in mountain country, which is way down low. The creek bottoms, the, the I don't know, the drainage ditches, all that kind of stuff. Uh, there's a lot of different thoughts on those types of things. But in most cases, you know, those bottom areas are still areas of high deer traffic. There's deer crossing these drainages. They're crossing these creeks. Um but it's something that historically a lot of people say, ah, it's really hard to hunt down low because of swirling winds. Uh, Bo, do you have a take or do you have anything when it comes to the bottoms that, uh, that you can share as far as, you know, how you use them, how you hunt them, if, and when, um, I I've, I've heard you talk about this a little bit, so I know you have some thoughts. I'm curious to hear what those are though. Yeah, I, I love creek bottoms, but what I'll say is not all of them are created equal. And ones that have steep, steep train that comes down and there's not a lot of space in that bottom or say like a draw that goes up that has a creek, it's really difficult with the wind in those areas. You get swirling winds, you get, uh, it's just, it's really difficult. But when you get an area where you get a little bit more of a flatter bottom that grows some thick cover because it's always kind of a little bit marshy in there and, and swampy, during the rut, those are some of my favorite places to hunt and a lot of the reason is so once once you get those cold temperatures in november um one thing i'll say is i don't normally hunt creek bottoms as much when it's warmer and even though you might think oh it's warmer they need water but the wind is tougher to hunt at that point where you when you have the colder weather and or still days it's not swirling as much and your thermals are almost always consistently following that creek downstream so I, I like to set up as close to it, almost over top of the water, which is difficult to be able to hear, but it gives you a consistent wind direction. And the the ticket for that is if there's a lot in a lot of these areas up here, we'll have beaver ponds that uh, the beavers will dam up an area of the stream that are in these valleys. And if you set set up on the top end of those beaver ponds, one, that body of water creates its own natural funnel. So they have to either cross above or below it. But if you set up above it, 
your thermals are coming down, down, you know, down the stream towards that pond. And when they hit you and they, and you say your wind and your sense going out across that water, what happens when it's cold out is that water is warmer than the air and it pulls up your scent up. So you're all, I call, I, I feel like I'm invincible when I'm in one of those situations because your wind's coming right at your face, hitting that water and going up. And so on those cold, frosty mornings in November, I, I really can't think of a, a better spot and because there's to, to talk about a little bit more is, you know, an area that I'm looking at that would almost create like a, so the ridges would almost like create like a turkey foot and you have these draws that run down and they all meet in that one spot, which will create like a bigger bottom. And those areas are travel spots. So although they like to run the tops of the ridges and do all of that, they're coming down at some point and they're crossing there. Those are spots that, that I'll sit all day in. I I've had more luck in the middle of the day than I have first light and in, in last light. So for, for me, I guess the key takeaways with crick bottoms are crick bottoms are, are known for having a lot of sign, but a lot of people say they're at night, you know, you can't hunt them because of the, the, the wind, but I, I almost feel the opposite on that, but you, you have to pay attention to the condition, colder weather, still winds and uh, the rut when they're cruising. I mean, those spots are, are money for me personally. All right. I'm convinced. What about you, Johnny? Is Bo full of it, or is he on to something? Bo's on it. He's the man. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, he's, 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 he's really good with thermals and wind, and he's definitely right that uh, there is a consistency, though, when, when it's later in the evening and them thermals are as long, you know, you get that just calm day and them thermals, and it, the, the thermals will come perpendicular down the hill, but also down maybe the stream where I said that one buck, you know, I know he was, I, I think he was coming kind of up the stream to that scrape, but he was coming from um, the one side in particular, but it was, it was kind of, I, I don't know where on that side, cause it was all thick where he's coming and it made it difficult to hunt um, that little Creek bottom because I didn't, chances are I was going to be above him. Um, if I was below him, um, I, I was screwed. Like if I went too far down a Creek, he would come above me and go to the scrape. But if I'm, it was just a difficult situation. You could find the right switch situation where if a deer, like what Bo said, if maybe a couple points come together, a deer cross, if you find a crossing to where he's sent checking, maybe what's up on him points where some does are bedding, that'd be a, a great spot to sit. Cause you're going to do the same thing as him. You're, you're at, you know, he's crossing at that point where that buck, that was using them thermals um, coming up that creek to check that scrape. I don't know exactly. I'm sure he's popping out in a random area. It was just like you can't sit at the scrape, and you don't, you go 50 yards too far from where he jumps down and works that creek up. You're screwed, you know. So your odds are were pretty poor there. But there's definitely situations um, the where it's you can use it to your advantage, you know, where they're crossing perpendicular. Um, or, um, like he said, if it's kind of a flatter area, um, it, it's not so contained into that one spot. Um, I hunt a lot of them creek bottoms, and like that one buck, you, you just you can't always, and it was, it was right there by a beaver pond too, but um, 
I was up in the timber a little bit, it swirled, and it just, it's hard to play that way. And I just try to get a scent free, like Bo said earlier, in these areas that we hunt up there, we'd be jumping tree to tree, you know, to try to play the wind to where, get your scent, and the colder it is, the more you're able to bundle up and hold, keep that scent in, in my opinion, you know, to help you with them swirling winds. And sometimes you gotta, you gotta take chances um, to, get an opportunity but um you don't want to over there are situations where you can hunt and the wind can be consistent that's a good spot um like out in the midwest and that but um you gotta be careful you can you're gonna like people tell me oh there's nobody hunting there but then you're there putting that scent and it's swirling around so can't be hunting there a lot you're gonna leave a lot of scent but you gotta take chances you know and always have five six spots five six different deer places to hunt because like that you could uh one hunt you could just screw up the whole place ruin that buck so you got to have a couple areas and ideas and it just comes back to scouting and boots on the ground and time and like i say i I live the closest piece of public land i hunt that i live close to is two and a half hours so i'm kind of in a situation where um take advantage and and know all you can before you you know you don't have the opportunity to go out your back door and scout you know so Johnny, if I were to, but uh, yeah, what's that, Mark? I was gonna say if if you had to guess or give me an estimate, if I asked you, all right, how many different quality spots do you have scouted and in your back pocket? Let's say for the rut, if 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 you had to estimate how many spots you have in your in your onyx or in your mental list of spots you could go to to hunt during the rut that are kind of scouted bet, thought through i bet you i got i got a, a lot of spots mark that i know are good that um i don't even hunt i have them just because i love scouting more than i do hunting i think now that i'm older i love learning new areas so i do have i probably have 10 15 spots and spots that'll just you know if i don't bring up my onyx and look at a pin that I forget about, but individual, sometimes it's, I was hunting kind of these two individual deer, the one I found this year and the one I, the one I was kind of hunting a little bit. Uh, so I got like two, three bows, deer, four or five individual deer. And then I also have maybe, um, so I got like maybe two or three spots with them deer. And so you're looking at six, 10 spots there. And I got maybe 10, 15 just spots that, um, I don't know maybe what the deer, what the actual deer is living there, but I know they're good spots. And a lot of times when my friends come to hunt, and I don't have the time to hunt all these spots. I'll put them there and they kind of help me scout. But the area that me and Bo hunt and the area, there's hundreds of thousands of acres, you know, and there's a lot of cover and there's a lot of, um, I do obtain a lot of spots. That, I mean, this is a good spot. You know, and it's hard to define that spot, whether the scrape or just maybe out of the way. But I bet you, yeah, I I, I could think of maybe 20 spots okay. that are good and not generalized trees, maybe just this area, yeah. you know, that I have there. But then I I hunt the Midwest a lot in Ohio, and I got, I got like, I hunted Iowa late season this year. And over the years I've hunted there, I got six, eight spots, and then I, I dropped cameras there. But every year is different, you know? So it's kind of like, you gotta, um, it could be like a, 
you could just guess like roll dice or sometimes I'll put cameras and see what, what's there this year. Yeah. So yeah, I have a lot, lot over the years, you know, 20 years, whatever, how many years hunting public land religiously years, six, seven years of public mm-hmm. land, but I have a lot of spots in a lot of different states just cause I, I love scouting and that's what I like doing. So yeah, well, it and seems... that's why I'm not afraid to hunt with other people and send them different. It's like some people, that's why I like helping people, you know, like, oh, I'm going here. I'll try this spot. I ain't been there in years, but that used to be good, you know, and just see what they, uh, see what they come up with. Yeah, it's nice to have. And that's, it's such a consistent thing among the folks that we talk to. I mean, if, if you're going to pick one consistent trait among, you know, consistent deer hunters, it's the fact that they have a lot of good quality spots scouted out and in their Rolodex of possible places they can hunt. You know, they're, they're never underprepared. They're always overprepared. Uh, I mean, you guys are clear examples. Uh, Andy here on the other side of the line, he's an obvious example of that. He's got more spots than he could hunt in 25 years, even if he let me hunt them all too. Um, so, <laughs> so I know that that's something that, you know, anyone listening, if you want one simple thing to do today to get better at this and have more luck and more consistent success, Scout and find more quality places, whether you hunt mountains or the farmland or whatever, just scout, 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 find more spots, find more spots. Um, I don't know. That's, it's just, it always, always comes up and it's, it's one of those effort related things. So it's within each of our control. It's not something that you have to be crazy smart to figure out. It's not something that you need to have a lot of money to figure out. It's not something that you need a big fancy property to do. This is something that any one of us can do, whether you you know, are a millionaire or you're graduating high school and you don't have a dollar to your name, you can find more spots and, uh, right there, put yourself in a better position. So, um, we're, we're getting, we're getting up on time here. Somehow an hour and 40 minutes has got away from us somehow. So I want to, I want to wind this towards an ending here before it's two in the morning and none of us can stay awake. So, (laughs) and Andy, what do you have any final thing you want to cover with these guys or final thoughts you want to get from Johnny and Bo? Yeah, I got, I got one more question. Um, so let's say there is, you know, this big old buck, you guys have followed the, you know, previous few years. He's, he's an, a big mature deer, high scoring deer, whatever your dream buck, you're going to put all your eggs in one basket and it's, let's say it's November 1st. So you're going to, you, 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 you finally locate this buck, you know, or he's, he's showing up in this area and now's the time to hunt him. So it's basically rut. And you know that he basically you have it narrowed down to like a ridge system or, or a mountain that, you know, with a, a main point, a couple main points and some secondary points in your opinion, or I guess for your guys, a strategy, would you be more mobile and bouncing around to different kind of pinches, like terrain pinches and, and travel like benches and saddles, kind of hitting new areas constantly moving around? Or would you be more inclined to plant your butt in one specific spot, whether, you know, whether it's a, the head of a drainage, head of the, the big main drainage or the major saddle coming through or a big bench on that leeward side and just sit there day after day after day if the weather and wind permitted 
do you guys have uh, 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 an idea of what you would do in that hypothetical situation or what you think would be most effective at getting an arrow in that buck? How about, let's start with you, Bo. So I would say, I think, I think that's a great question. And my, my response to that is I would stay in that one spot more than I would bounce around. And the reason for it is one, low deer density, two, with those sporadic patterns, you just, if you know that a buck, um, say you have trail camera data is hitting a scrape or going through this pinch or whatever, he's going to do it eventually. You got to be there for it. And as I'm saying this so confidently on the line, I screw this up more times than not because I want to bounce around or I lose some confidence in that but i've learned that the the more that i do stay in those specific spots they during the rut um specifically the better chances that i have during it now if i if i go you know three or four days and it doesn't all i've seen was a a couple squirrels um I, i i'm gonna be inclined to move and realize things have changed but um for the for the most part sitting still and, and at least giving it, uh, you know, two or three days of, of constant, you know, hunting in those areas because you, you don't burn them out as quick as other spots because there's not as many deer and you're not blowing them out going in or anything there. So that's, that's my short and sweet answer to it. All right. How about you, Johnny? Well, it's been a while since I've had my dream buck that I've been chasing. Um, you know, this public land that we hunt, there's 140s, 150s, but I am, my goal, and it's been my goal for the last five, six years is to shoot 170 inch on public land to where a few years ago I had one. And now it's like where I'm at in my hunting career. Um, I enjoy the rut. I enjoy hunting with friends and sometimes I'm impatient because I don't have that deer that I would do whatever it takes. I'm not trying to I didn't shoot a deer this year. I had my bow back once on a deer in January this year, you know, and I don't care. Um, I don't, but, um, if I had that dream deer, I would do whatever it takes to get that deer. And like Bo said, I would probably sit if I knew chances are, um, the more experience you have with a deer, the more you'll know. So if it's only a deer that I just found this year. And, um, so actually I got another deer that I had on camera this summer. He was pushing 170, and, and he just, that's all I got is a summertime picture, but this shed season, I'm going to kind of head maybe in the direction I think. So it's my, if I do catch them this summer again, or find a shed or it's going to be a new deer. So I might not know that much. Like we always talk about, it takes years to know about these deer to where, um, it's going to be harder to hunt them, harder to sit in that one spot. Cause I don't know, but if it's a deer that I've chased for a few years and I know him, um, and I know he's going to come by this spot, I'm going to stay there. And I'm going to do whatever it takes. It's been years since I've done that and wanted one bad enough that I would do that and sit. Cause I am, maybe I'll sit till noon. Maybe I'll just do midday. I'll go scout or whatever. Cause that's where I'm at. I'm just enjoying my hunting. I'm not trying to prove myself in that, but yeah, I would sit in one spot, but as long as in your head, um, like be optimistic with your spot and know it's, a good spot, but also be realistic. You, you say, I'm going to sit here eight, 10 days till I shoot the deer. 
But if you get that feeling like maybe the wind come across the back of your neck, maybe you think he's over there. Um, I don't take chances with a mature deer. If I think I screwed it up a little bit, I'll get down and move. So, yeah. But there are some stands that I have that a wind's right. I said, man, I could sit here every day on a southwest wind, and it'd be great. But chances are in this situation, maybe you're going – and a lot of times I find myself uh, getting into where these bucks are, and I – it's risky even getting into them spots. That's a big, that's a whole nother conversation and getting into hunting these areas. How uh, you might blow them out, blow a deer out, but, and it's, it's you're walking a fine line again. Did I blow him out or did I blow maybe just a, a smaller buck out? Is he still here? So it's, it's really a mental game when you're, you are hunting them, those animals, whether I should stay or where I should go. But for the most part, if if you got them nailed down and it's a deer, or if I got them nailed down and it's a deer that I want to harvest, I'll, I'll stick to that spot that I know he's going to come by. And but yeah, it's it's that's those are some great answers. Um, the, I've I've been thinking about this a lot lately. I I'm admittedly am a, a a very mobile hunter. I do get a little impatient and just kind of pounding away at the yeah. same spot. But I. I did that this year with my Ohio buck and it, it, it led to me killing him. Um, I just felt like I was always chasing, chasing him around and I, he was always like two or three steps ahead of me. So I decided to just stay in one spot that I knew he frequent, um, you know, a few times the season before. Um, and then there's two other mountain hunters that I know that you guys I'm sure have heard of, uh, Troy Pottinger and, and Bobby Worthington. Um, are both, you know, guys that are pretty stationary, you know, on the, on the mountain, um, if they're after a particular buck. And I mean, I've read stories of Bobby hunting like 30 straight days in the same tree, you know, for a, for a specific buck. The thing that I struggle with with that though, I think is like, you never know if that buck comes through after dark and catches like, you know, Mm -hmm. a a boot track or something like that. And that, that's what's always kind of messing with my mind is like, okay, I might be sitting there on the fifth or sixth day. And it's like, you know, did, did he come through and catch my ground scent and he's never coming now. So I just, uh, I just wanted to ask you guys that, but I don't know, Mark, uh, you got another one for these guys before we wrap it up. Yeah. I, I think, um, I think to your point, Andy, on that one, it takes a lot of confidence. It takes a lot of confidence in like knowing that you're in the right spot. And it takes a lot of confidence in knowing that you've been able to pull it off effectively all those previous days. But if you have that, if you have that experience or that knowledge that can tell you that, yeah, you're, you're getting away with it, it makes a lot of sense to do that. But it sure seems hard to get to that point where you're not constantly second guessing yourself. I, uh, <laughs> I can certainly see that, that being dangerous. That's uh, definitely a good point that the confidence, um, if you're so confident, I've been in them situations where I'm so confident. I don't care what I did being in that tree. Um, I just knew I was going to kill a deer. So if you get to that point that your confidence is up that much, then yeah, by all means stay there. If you believe in that spot and if you believe it that much, you will see it. And just in life, you know, whatever yeah. it is. Yeah. Lots of to that. <laughs> Johnny always had, he always, pumps me up when I'm, say I'm during a rut and I'm down a little bit and either 
we'll meet up during the season or he'll text me or something. He'll be like, Bo, you're confident and you you know these deer better than than anyone, these deer that you're hunting. He's like, be confident in your spots, you know, be, and sometimes that that helps give you a little having friends like that gives you a little pick me up. And and you do, even when you do get down on things, mm-hmm. you know, understanding that you, you know, you did the work, you kind of learned it. Yes, you gotta know when to move and kind of have that feeling, but at the same time, you know, just because you had one or two bad hunts doesn't mean it's a bad spot. And and you gotta somehow figure out a way, depending on your personality, how to kind of keep that confidence and and you know, knowing you're gonna do that. Whenever I tell, you know, I'll be like tell Johnny good luck, he always says, I don't I don't believe in luck. We're well, if we get it done, it's because we put ourselves in the right spot. Yeah, a lot of truth to that. So so I want to end. I think that's some really good stuff we covered there. I want to end with just one last question for you, Bo, uh, because at the very beginning, Andy mentioned that you think the best mountain hunter you know is your dad. And what I'm wondering, to wrap us up here, what is the one single most important thing that your dad, who has been this incredibly successful mountain hunter for years and years, what's that most important rule or guideline or piece of wisdom that he's pounded into your head over the years? What would that be? Let's let your dad end this episode. <laughs> I, I wish he'd tell me that answer. No, <laughs> <laughs> what, I, what I've picked up on is just he knows his areas like the back of his hand. He knows every square inch he's scouts them to a point that is i mean he he knows these areas like no other and I, if i were to speak for him which i may not be doing it the the way it should be but he puts in a ridiculous amount of time every single year in learning areas and also having a bunch of backup areas having a bunch of spots as you discussed earlier my dad every time i talk about going to scout in new area he's like oh yeah i, I hunt there too and i'm like what <laughs> like you know he's, he's he tends to have a, a lot of spots and 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 so I, I would think that you know just the amount of time he puts in scouting and then i, I guess i'm making this a little bit long-winded but in the persistence side of it like he just continually hunts and hunts and hunts and just goes goes through it and I I well I haven't seen him come out of a November without a archery tag filled since I was a kid. So he he tends to uh, do pretty well with that. And I'm again I'm still trying to figure out all the details and if there's like one secret that he has, but uh, <laughs> he he doesn't always convey that to me. <laughs> I'm I'm joking. He he definitely shares a, a ton with me. But just, he's 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 a he's a funny guy. He's a he's mysterious when it comes to. It. Uh, that's good. That's a good. That's a good place to wrap it up. Good, great <laughs> wisdom from uh, Papa Martonic and uh, Bo and Johnny. I, I just thank you both for taking the time to to share all this with us and and tell your stories and give us some insight to what it's like to hunt places like this. And I, I'm excited to do more of it myself. And in fact, my my uh, my place out in Idaho is is pretty similar to this type of habitat. So I'm I'm gonna be putting it into action this year. Uh, in particular. So thank you selfishly for helping me get that done. (laughs) 
Yeah, no problem, Mark. It was uh, it was a blast coming on here and talking to all you guys. I I love these roundtable discussions, and I told Andy that before. I've been listening into them, and it's it's always creates a a really good conversation. So I I really really appreciate you having us on here. All right, and that's a wrap. Thank you for tuning in. Thanks for sticking with us on a long conversation there. I hope you picked up a few things that can help with your future hunts. And until we chat again, thank you for your time and your attention. And stay wired to hunt. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase.